We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. All right. Well, if you have a Bible tonight, let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9, as we look at God's kindness um, expressed through David, we're going to see towards an individual named Mephibosheth, and we're also going to see how David expressed kindness towards uh, a king, but he didn't accept the kindness, and it's kind of a, a, an illustration of how, you know, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you have received the kindness of God. You know, we're going to look at a couple of passages later, one in Ephesians chapter 2, another in Titus chapter 3. But, you know, even though we're going to see that, you know, Mephibosheth is a picture of us, we're lame in our feet, we live in a place called Lodabar, which means no pasture. I mean, we have nothing, we're hiding, we're on the run. Just like Mephibosheth, we're going to see um, just really nothing for him, nothing going for him. The king... Think about that. The king went looking for him and showed kindness to him, treating him as his own son. And, and, and that's a picture of what God has done for us. You know, we're going to see that in Mephibosheth. And so praise God, if you're a Christian, I pray that you would know who you are in, in one sense because you got to know how much God loves you. It's so important that you don't enter into a works-oriented relationship with God. That you think, well, God loves me when I do good and, and He doesn't love me when I do bad. And that I know I need to like earn my righteousness. I need to keep my salvation. Um, it's important that you don't enter into that type of relationship with God. That, that because of the relationship that you have with Christ, that because you've received and believed in Jesus, that the Father accepts you as a child of His own. And it's very important to understand that type of Christianity because it's real easy to get into a works-oriented relationship with God. Because what I found is, yeah, I want to be the godly man and I, and I want to be, you know, just this type of son and this type of friend and, and this type of servant. And, you know, you're striving to do it. And then when you fail, a lot of times you get frustrated because you think, well, then God's against you now. And God's, you know, like, you know, you know, not listening to you, and God's, and, and, and in real reality, when you understand that He still loves you, that He's still your Father, I mean, yeah, He might give you a little, you know, spanking or whatever, you know, but it's, just, it's with a smile, with gentleness, looking into your eyes. I mean, when you understand God's love that never changes, then you begin to change from the inside out. Some people will change from the outside in, but it's not real. You can just tell. You can just tell. It's, they're not real. They're not real. You can see it. But when an individual has, has discovered the love that God has for them, it becomes real. And, uh, and when you kind of bump their cup, out comes love. <laughs> right? And it's a beautiful thing. We're going to see this important lesson illustrated to us through the life of Mephibosheth. Look what it says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. It says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Yeah, 
interesting that David would be so proactive. You know, most of us are reactive. Something happens or someone comes into our life or whatever, and then we'll respond to it. I mean, when was the last time you just sat down and you just looked up to God or you just thought within your heart, God, is there anyone of the household of my enemy that I can show kindness to? Because that's who Saul was. I mean, he didn't really have to mention Saul, but he did. We know that Saul was the father of Jonathan. And it was really for Jonathan's relationship that really motivated him. But he didn't, you know, neglect to mention Saul. Remember, Saul tried to kill him. You know, David was on the run for 10 years. But David here shows this kindness, this compassion. Uh, literally, it's a covenant faithfulness. Now, earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17, and 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42, you know, David had made a covenant with Jonathan and, you know, with their descendants. And he says, hey, David, when you become king, whatever you do, don't, don't, don't wipe out my descendants. We're going to make a covenant together. And David, of course, was, you know, he was, he was definitely willing to, you know, hold to that covenant. You guys know, a lot of you here, you know how much David loved Jonathan, huh? I mean, there was a special love there. But even with Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and verse 21, Saul said, Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. Right? And so he had that covenant with them. I won't kill them. I won't kill them. Because most kings, when they got on the throne, that was one of the first things they did. Hey, you're a threat, you're a threat, you're a threat. And the dynasty of the previous kingdom would be wiped out. As a matter of fact, that's why in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, when they found out that Ishbosheth was dead, then what, what did they do? Man, what we find, I mean, Saul was dead. What we find is that they came and uh, the, the, the maidservant, she was carrying Mephibosheth, who was only uh, five years old, and she dropped him as they were running. Because when a new king comes on the scene, he kills them all. So as she was running, she dropped him. We don't know exactly what happened. Some say it was some type of a spinal cord injury, but he couldn't, he couldn't walk. He was lame in his feet. And so here's David, and just blows your mind. Talk about a challenge for us as Christians. Do you have this kind of love? A kind of love that would say, not only you know, will I allow my enemies to survive because I made some type of a technical covenant with whosoever it was, but I want to find them so that I can show kindness to them. That's, that's the type of love that God has for us. And that's the type of love that we should have for others, just being proactive. We know that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And what we find the word kindness refers to is God's mercy and favor towards undeserving people. One person said kindness is like love in working clothes. So God, is there anybody I can show kindness to of the house of my former enemy, you know? And, uh, and so he's asking, and then word gets around. We don't know how, but somehow they find out that this guy Ziba, maybe he was still steward over Saul's territory. They bring him in. Hey, are you Ziba? It's actually Ziba. Yes, I'm Ziba at your service. Is there any of Saul's descendants? Well, you know what? One I do know of this guy, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Now notice where he is. It says he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. I mean, this guy doesn't even have his own house. He's living with Machir. And uh, he's living in a place called Lodibar, which means literally no pastures. I mean, it was really a bad place to live. Why do you think he was living there? Because uh, he, didn't want, he didn't want David to find him. He was, he was on the run. He was hiding. He was living in a place where, you know, Death Valley, no one would want to live there. 
And so he gets the information, and notice what happens. We read in verse 5, And then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and he said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You know, imagine that. You know, the day comes, knocking at your door, the king wants to see you. What? I mean, just like the, the, the worst words you could possibly hear because, I mean, it's really, I mean, come on, let's think about this realistically. There's no way that you're going to survive all the kings, kill all the former king's family. That's so just the way it is all the time. But he gets the word, there's really not much he can do about it. And so, you know, he finds himself there in Jerusalem with David. He comes in, Mephibosheth, are you Mephibosheth? And he just falls on his face. He falls on his face. He's thinking, I'm about to die. I'm just about to die. And what we see right here is unheard of. It's unimaginable. I mean, this is beyond comprehension. Mephibosheth considered himself to be a worthless and insignificant person, right? But, you know, and I don't know how you feel about yourself. I don't know what your self-esteem is or whatever, you know. Um, we shouldn't really have self-esteem. But Mephibosheth is so cool. He's a picture of, of what we are. You know, to be honest with you, apart from the Lord, I am worthless. I am insignificant. I deserve to die. I should die. I mean, I'd be lucky to be surviving in some place where there's no pasture or whatever. You know, that's who I am apart from the Lord. But what we find right here is when we look at this whole picture, it's just so beautiful. He considered himself to be worthless and insignificant, but... You know, we know the story of Jonathan and David, and we know, because we know that story, that that's far, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, you're the son of Jonathan? Jonathan, you're Jonathan's son? I mean, in all reality, you know, just knowing a little bit about their relationship, don't you think that David was just so excited to meet a son of Jonathan? Don't you guys think that? I know I do, man, when I read their relationship. This is the furthest thing from the truth. You're not worthless. You're not insignificant. You're the son of Jonathan. I mean, he was my best friend in the whole world, and we had this, you know, best relationship imaginable. And you're... And you're his son? Do you realize what that means to me? I mean, David, oh man, must have been tripping out. You know, Jonathan's son. And because of his connection to Jonathan, Mephibosheth was so significant and worthwhile, so dear, and now so near to the king. Right? Because of his relationship with Jonathan. You guys, and that's the picture of what we have. You know, yeah, apart from the Lord, you know, we're worthless and insignificant. We deserve to die. But because of the fact that we have believed and received Jesus Christ, right, and we have that relationship with Him, when the Father looks at us, man, He's just so blessed. And He values us. And he's going to lavish, we're going to see the blessings upon us. Notice he says right here in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, 
And he says right here, And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. You know, life has a way, and I've noticed this, maybe before you were a Christian, or maybe, I don't know, just different elements of even being a Christian, Life has a way of, of us kind of like losing land. Life has a way of us not really entering into our inheritance or forfeiting our inheritance. And our inheritance is so many things. I believe it's uh, you know things that we belong in, things that belong to us, um, ways of serving God, even just uh, uh, ways of walking in victory as Christians. You know, that, that just are given to us. And I think that, you know, this is a picture right here of this restored relationship and this realization that because of our relationship with Christ, that, that it's all restored to us. You know, kind of like the scripture, I, for, I forgot to write it down here in Joel, I'll restore to you the years that the canker worm has eaten. And all those years went by and, and maybe, you know, it was wasted time. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to restore it to you. Or maybe there was this place of service where you served the Lord and, and you were giving your gifts to God and you were exercising them for the glory of God. And, and maybe you've been on the shelf or whatever. And God says, I will restore to you the land that really rightfully belongs to you. Or I don't know what it is, but I just know there's this inheritance, there's this land that maybe, you know, we stepped away from, or maybe it was stripped away, or whatever it is, but I just know God says, I want to restore this to you. And, and as a matter of fact, it gets so much better than that. You know, because you're going to have the great, because Saul's land was a great land. It was a beautiful land. It was a lush land. But even better than that, Mephibosheth, what I want you to do is I want you to eat with me at my table every single day of your life. You know, I was thinking about when Joy was mentioning the men's barbecue, and I was thinking, good food, good food, really good food. And I'm gonna, definitely not going to do my diet on that night, you know, because I've been doing a diet, and it's driving me crazy. But I tell you what, you know, we know what it is when you get hooked up, when you get the really good, good food, I mean, in all reality, to be blunt, it's the best food in the whole country. Right? David says, you know, Mephibosheth, you and I, man, we're going to have some good food. And when you read about, and it actually gives details about Solomon's daily menu. It's pretty amazing, man. But here's David. And, and of course we know this. And of course we know this. And the same is true about the barbecue, you guys. It's not the food, huh? It's much more than that food that perishes. To fellowship with the king. I mean, do we realize what we have in the Lord, you know? To be able to fellowship with the king, to eat bread with him at his table continually, you know? That's what we have. You know, there's a really beautiful scripture in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. You know, this is a relationship that we have. God loves you. The Father loves you so much. Because of the fact that you had received his son. Just like David loved Mephibosheth because of the fact that he had that relationship with Jonathan. And so he restores to us the land. And, and he gives us this invitation to, to eat at his table every single day. I want to encourage you guys, don't miss out. Don't miss out on that on that table. When you hear the, 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 the door, you know, someone knocking at the door, and it's Jesus, and he wants to sit with you, and he wants to spend time with you, man, don't miss that one, okay? You know, lately, and this is just my personal thing, but God has just been telling me, go to bed earlier so that you can wake up earlier 
and, and really have just that quality, quantity time with me. Because it's hard, you know? Because my kids are young and they want to stay up late. And I want to hang out with them. I do. But the bottom line is, you know, and they know this, I love the Lord more than I love them. And I love them like crazy. But I won't let anything take away my quiet time with God. And so I have to, I have to trust them. That's, a, that's probably the hardest part. You guys aren't going to burn the house down, are you? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go to bed because i got to wake up early. Because last time I read my Bible, and I just did the little thing the other day, Jesus woke up before the sun. He woke up before the sun did. And he spent time with his father. You know, and so this fellowship at the table that we have access to now with the king, even though we're lame, man, even though we have struggles, even though we're insignificant and worthless apart from him, now we realize, you know, who we are. And, and it's just so amazing, the, the salvation we have. Um, a couple of real quick verses over in Ephesians, if you want to turn there. It says in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And so, for a lot of you here, probably for most of you here, it was, this was before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, sin had dominion over you. You were on the course of wickedness, the course of this world. And you were by nature children of wrath. Now we're not talking about man's wrath. And we're not talking about, you know, the angel's wrath. We were under the wrath of God. And there was no way out. There was no way out. That's where we were. Do you guys remember when you were dead in your sins? Yeah. But, look at verse 4, God. You see, and yeah, we respond to the invitation, but just like we read earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 9, God, God busted the move first, right? God said, I'm going to be proactive. Who can I show kindness to? It wasn't Mephibosheth looking for David. It was David looking for Mephibosheth. But God came in. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you already know? Did you know you're seated in the heavenly? That's, that's really what the Bible says. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Here it is, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of kindness that God has beautiful for you know the rest of eternity when they point at, at at me and i don't know you know how this all works you're like man what's he doing here you know it's the kindness of god look at how good and how powerful and how gracious god is look at him look at them look at what god has done with the wicked rebellious race of human beings Look at where they are. Look at how they are now. Seated in the heavenly places. And it's the kindness of God. It's love in working pants, right? I mean, I, even over in Titus, if you go there, Titus chapter 3, I love this in, in verse 4. Well, I mean, even if you look earlier in verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to... Speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Reason being, for we ourselves were also once foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He saved us. That's the God that we serve. Who can I show kindness to? And here you are, Mephibosheth. That's a cool name, I think, Mephibosheth. I think you should name your next son Mephibosheth. And so then David does what? He adopts Mephibosheth. He restores the land. And it's amazing when you read this whole story here. And so we read in verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, he said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. And this master's son, not, not Mephibosheth, the master's son, but Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. It's interesting, and it, and it closes and says, and he was lame in both feet. He was lame in both feet. And so he, God definitely took care of him, right? Um, restored the land as his servants. Even later, we're going to see as we go through Second Samuel, when because of the way that Saul killed the Gibeonites, God brought a famine to the land and God revealed to them that that was why. So some of Saul's descendants died, but Mephibosheth, this Mephibosheth, was spared, right? Because of his relationship with Jonathan. And sometimes I read this right here, and I'm like, Lord, you know, why do you kind of bring up the fact that he was lame in, in his feet? And I don't know, I don't want to read into it, but, you know, what if he wasn't lame in his feet? What if he was strong? What if he could walk? What if he could run? What if he could fight? There might be a temptation to say, Hey, I'm Saul's son. I'm Jonathan's son. I, I should be king. But his lame feet, they did what? They humbled him. You know, for some of us here, you know, whatever the, the things, we have our issues and we have our struggles. And sometimes we wish, man, I, I wish I didn't have this, these lame feet. I wish I didn't have this, this issue. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm just talking about things that are beyond our control. You want to know what? Thank God. Thank God for those things, man, because it keeps us where we need to be. It, it keeps us humble. So that we don't go around <laughs> trying to take over the throne. And so David here shows kindness to Mephibosheth. And then, you know, David's a cool guy. He then goes and he shows kindness to the king of the people of Ammon. Look what it says in chapter 10, verse 1. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father shown kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Again, David wants to show kindness. This time, however, his attempt leads to war instead of peace. And one thing that's interesting is the word to show kindness. It can also carry the meaning of make a covenant. And so it was probably in David's heart to not only comfort Hanan, but also to make a treaty with him. And so what happens? In verse 3, 
And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city to spy it out and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and, and then return. And so David shows kindness to Mephibosheth and that kind of works out. Uh, he shows kindness to Hanan and it doesn't. You know, Jesus Christ shows kindness to everyone. For some, it's so cool, they eat at his table. For others, they start a fight with God. Start a fight with God. If you're here today and, and you know what, you're not, you're not like fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are an enemy with God. And let me tell you something, you will not win the war against God. Who knows, you might have a, very, a fairly decent life and who knows, maybe you'll get rich and famous. But you will lose the war because you're fighting against God. And so your best bet is to humble yourself and be broken of your sin before it's too late, before you're blind. You got to do it and you got to do it now. Because these guys, they didn't accept the kindness. And it's a lesson for us. You know, I think there's a lot of things going on here. David is a good example for us to be proactive and showing kindness even to our enemies. And, uh, you know, David here, it's kind of cool. Someone dies. I mean, it's neat. Send them a little card. Tell them you're praying for them. You know, those acts of kindness are, are really, really helpful. And at the same time, you know, you got to be careful that you are not one of those people that are, you know, you, you're, you're so afraid of, of, and you're so suspicious of everybody that, that, that when they come or however the situation is, they show up, you're like, that's not really why they're here. They, they want to take over. <laughs> and part of the reason that these guys were, were all afraid, oh, they thought they were lying, it's probably because they were liars. That's the way they would have done it. And so they tell Hanan, oh, you think David's here, you know, to, to make peace? You know what? He just wants to start a war. And they're all suspicious and they're all afraid. And you know what? Don't, don't live your life motivated based on the fears. There are so many fears, huh? That the enemy tries to throw away that will drive you crazy, man. If someone wants to take over, you know what? Give them to God. Don't worry about it. God will take care of them. You don't have to sink to their level. Right? We don't have to be all suspicious like that. Give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not talking about being, you know, um, lacking any type of discernment. I'm just talking about, you know, just not being moved by fears. That's what these guys were. They were so afraid. David Guzik said, It's common for liars always suspect others of lying, Right? They're hiding something. You think that they're hiding something. Probably because you're hiding something, man. <laughs> what type of person are you? Would you do that? I mean, come on. You know, so what ends up happening? They don't accept his uh, peace offer, and so they shave off half their beard. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. I don't know if they did it like this or if they did it like this. But I do know this, that that in those days was huge, huge. I mean, nowadays, if someone shaved off my beard, you know, it's no big deal, right? But in those days, it was huge. According to the Torah and Jewish tradition, the beard was a symbol of masculinity, and this was an act of humiliation. Jewish men were supposed to keep their beards intact, according to Leviticus 19.27 and Leviticus 21, verse 5, Deuteronomy 14.1 through 2. And so to tamper with a man's beard was a great insult. All Jews, of course, were to be dressed modestly, so exposing the men's bodies was even more embarrassing. It was treating them as though they were prisoners of war. If you read Isaiah 
chapter 20, verse 3 and 4, it says, And the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their behinds uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So they treated them as as they humiliated them. They already treated them as prisoners of war. And so it was an act of war. That's really what it was. And that culture, many men would rather die than to have their beard shaved off. Because to be clean shaven was the mark of a slave, but free men had beards. Now, Kyle and Dellett said, with the value universally set upon the beard by the Hebrews and other Oriental nations, as being man's greatest ornament, the cutting off of one half of it was the greatest insult that it could have been offered to the ambassadors and through them to David, their king. The beard is held in high respect in the East. The possessor considers it his greatest ornament. He often swears by it. Imagine that, I swear by my beard. I mean, that sounds weird, huh? <laughs> and in matters of great importance, pledges it. Nothing can be more secure than a pledge of this kind, its owners will redeem it at the hazard of their life. And so, you know, you need to know that that was the background to it. Every once in a while you meet a guy nowadays and uh, they want to grow a beard. You know, they want to grow a beard and, and you, know, they, you know, they want it real thick. And, and if it comes out real thick, I, I know one guy, uh, he's a friend of mine, he needs Santa Claus every year, you know. But he's real proud of his beard, you know. And I don't know. Um, I, to them, it was just a real, real big thing. So for them to cut it off, to cut off their clothes, send them back, tail between their legs, an act of war. And so David, not wanting to humiliate them, he says, go ahead and wait in Jericho till your beard grows back. And, and we got some, some things to do here. And so we read in verse 6, it says, When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Now this is the first time you read about the mighty men of David in the Bible. And these mighty men, great men, they used to be all messed up. <laughs> but now, they're warriors, man. And then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, Rehob, Ishtab, and Maacah were by themselves in the field. And so you had the Syrians, they come out of the city, they're in front of the city, I mean the Ammonites, but then you have the Syrians that are in the back of the field. And so here's the army of Israel, and they've got, you know, they're, they're surrounded. They're surrounded, that's what's going on. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 19, they had hired them. They had hired them with money, a thousand talents. And so what ends up happening in verse 9? When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, and I love this, man. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Now isn't that, isn't that awesome counsel? You know, they're surrounded. They've got an army in front of them, army behind them. You know, so, you know, they use wisdom. Okay, Abishai, I want you to take care of them. I'm going to lead the front over here. And, uh, and let's look out for each other. You know, let's watch each other's back. And if you see that I'm, I'm getting, you know, beat up, I'm getting defeated, then will you help me? Will you help me? And, and if I see you're getting beat up. I make a, com a commitment. I'll help you. I'll help you. And, you know, I, it's hard, it was hard for me to get past that passage. Because 
That's, that should be the way the church is, you know? Um, when one's down, and I've seen this before, you guys, and then someone comes up and they just, they give them a big kick. A big kick. And the person's already like convicted, the person's already condemned. And then some Christian, some holier-than-thou Christian comes up and says, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some uh, some salt in those wounds." You guys don't be that way. When you see your brother down, and they might be failing, I don't know. I don't know how. You know, and I understand there is a time that Jesus rebuked the self-righteous Pharisees, but the hurting sinners. Lift them up. Because the bottom line is, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, it says, Brethren, if anyone's overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, we have to do it in meekness and in gentleness. And we have to be there for each other. And verse 12, this is, Be of good courage, and, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. You know, some things in life are tough, man. I mean, I've reached a point in my life now where basketball is tough. You know, I would never play full court, to be honest with you, man. It's hard, you know. Or imagine if someone said, Hey, you know, we got to wrestle. You know, when I was in a certain age in high school, no problem. But now, oh, man, I'd die, right? Imagine what war is like. War. War, you guys. That's what we're in. We're in a war. It's a spiritual war, so it's not going to be easy. And so we have to be of good courage, he says right here. You know, some people think that courage and strength are things that are kind of like woven within the fabric of every single person. And, and, uh, and I mean, not every single person, only the elite. But... When you read the Bible, that can't be true because it's a command for everybody. You look at that person right there and you think, well, they have a lot of courage. And, and maybe it comes out that way. But even if you don't have it, you've got to choose it. You've got to choose to be courageous and you've got to choose to be strong. See, they are matters of choice especially when God makes His strength available to us. Remember Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. As a matter of fact, to be strong is found 30 times in the Bible. Isaiah 35 verse 4, Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You know, I don't know what you're going through tonight or what the situations are. You know, but you, you gotta, you gotta, we gotta have faith. We must have faith. We must believe. We must take courage. We must be strong. You know, there, there's that part of our heart that a lot of times, and I think a lot of the church, unfortunately, they're, they're basing their decisions on, on, on fear. And God says, no. You know, when Gabriel came to Daniel, he said, Oh man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Let God strengthen you. Let him strengthen you. I like what it says later in Daniel 11.32, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. You got to know, not just the power of God, yes, that too, but when you combine the knowledge of the power of God with the love of God that He has towards you, I tell you what, the people who know their God like that, God's power, God's love, oh man, you're going to be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. 
And I like 2 Timothy 2.1. This is probably one of my favorite verses, if not my favorite verse in the Bible. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm not making light of sin. Don't get me wrong. But unless you receive and understand the forgiveness and the freedom and the grace that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ, you will never be the man that God's called you to be or the woman. That grace will forgive you of your sin and that grace will help you overcome your sin. You won't do it. And so we have to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because we're in the war and notice what we're fighting for. Again, in verse 12, be of good courage and let us be strong for who? Our people. And for the cities of our God. I mean, you guys, this is not a game. You're not fighting for, you know, whatever it is, the lottery that you're thinking about or the 10 bucks that you put down. Or, you know, the other day we had a game and it was the girls against the boys. And I'll tell you what, Christians can be very competitive. You got to pray before you do those games, man. I mean, but we're not playing a game for whatever, bragging rights. We are fighting for the people of God and for the cities of our God. God called us to Almani. God called us to other places too. And then I like what he says, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Determination for God is good but dependence upon him is better. I don't know all the details of how every battle is going to line up. But the outcome is the Lord's. I know that. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. I'll do my part. But deliverance is of the Lord. See, he gets the final word. And they, they weren't naming and claiming it. They were just saying, you know what, I don't know how this is all going to turn out, God. But I'm going to fight to the death. Right? And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. And so, you know, the, the hired, you know, army splits and so the Ammonites go back into the city. And so Joab goes back to Jerusalem but, in verse 15, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Here's the funny name again. Then Hadadizer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam and Shobak, the commander of Hadadizer's army, went before them. And when it was told David, now this is interesting, make note of this. David hears about this, this muster of army that's coming, right? He gathered all Israel crossed over the Jordan and came to Helam and the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. I mean, they, they fled. You know, chariots, 7,000 cavalry. And again, we talked a little bit about this last week, where the victory was taken to a different level. I mean, was it David? You know, we read about the mighty men earlier, and I was reading a commentary on this. David couldn't have done it without the mighty men, but at the same time, the mighty men were enjoying the anointing of David. David had a heart after God. And you know what's kind of interesting in this whole story right here is there came a point where David had to be there. You know, because the Syrians were gathering, and David hears about it. And you know, sometimes it would just be Joab, but David says, you know what, i got to be there. And so he goes out, they get the victory, God gave them the victory, just like it is God who will give you the victory. It's not you. you got to be praying. Because if you're not praying, then you know, you're not believing that you need God in that situation. It's God who will give us the victory over ourselves, 
over every enemy. And the Lord's been showing me this lately. There are enemies who have, who have, who have come into your life and they have fortified themselves against you. They've taken strategic areas out of your life. They've gained control over this area or that area in your life. Do you realize that? We need the spiritual discernment to say, what are those areas, God? And I will attack. And I will regain those areas for your glory. But David had to go. God gave him the victory. And so you can picture the Ammonites are now in the city, right? And so they're in the city. Okay. A little time goes by, and then Joab is going to go and surround that same city. Same city. But David, we're going to see in the next chapter, he doesn't go. He stays behind. And after reading all these amazing things that God does with his life, he falls in the sexual sin. And everything changes. It's a lesson, you guys. A lot of cool things reading the Bible. Some people say, well, the Bible's not relevant. Oh my gosh, you're crazy, man. <laughs> it's relevant. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy in our lives, Lord. And I pray, Father, that, um, that we would know the great salvation we have in our King Jesus. And I pray you encourage your Christians here, Lord, to, to man up, to woman up, Lord, to be... Uh, what you've called us to be and to fight, like Nehemiah 4.14 says, to fight for our houses, for our children, for our marriages, for our wives. Lord, to fight that fight with spiritual weapons, Lord. Encourage your people, Lord, tonight in this unchanging love, this kindness that we can't even begin to imagine, that we could eat at your table every single day. Lord, I love you. I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray you would continue to just part your spirit, Lord, and just meet us, Lord, where we are tonight. And if there's anyone here tonight, Lord, who's really struggling and discouraged and, Lord, despondent, they don't even want to live anymore, they don't want to go on in their marriage, they uh, find themselves, Lord, and just depressed, not wanting to get out of bed, or, or whatever it is, they, they feel like they've just failed one too many times, Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, that you would encourage them like we read how Gabriel spoke to Daniel and then Daniel was strengthened by his words Lord speak to your people and Lord of course we pray if there is anyone here tonight who doesn't know you who's not a Christian I pray they would know Lord that apart from you they're standing in their own righteousness that they're standing in sin and they're headed for hell but you came and you died for them. And I pray, Lord, they would know that. You were put in a grave, you rose again. And they need to turn from their sins tonight and truly, totally, completely trust you as the Lord, the Master, the one who calls the shots. Lord, only you can save a soul. I pray you would do that tonight. And I pray in Jesus' name. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.